So I've had some fun with sermon titles the last two weeks. Um, Pastor Anders ruins everything. So we had some, so there, we had some fun with that in the office this week. Uh, someone came in and said, "What happened? Why, Pastor Anders? What happened?" I said, "Nothing happened. Let me explain." So a few years ago, there was a show on the cable network, uh, True TV, called "Adam Ruins Everything," and it was starred by the comedian Adam Conover. And basically, the show was all about how Adam Conover dispelling these common myths and misconceptions we have around all sorts of different subjects. Um, he did that all back in the day before the conversations about fake news was a thing. Uh, the show had a, a pretty simple format. An ordinary person would be going about their ordinary life doing an ordinary thing when they would state some common misconception that we all have, and then Adam Conover would jump out of nowhere and start to correct all of those misconceptions. That'd be kind of annoying if it actually really did happen to us, but that's kind of how the show went. And so, uh, for example, in one of my favorite episodes, someone is sitting in a waiting room at the hospital complaining about how much they have to pay for their medical care, like a really common thing. We all complain about that. And she says, well, it's worth it for me to pay this much if I get the best medical care in the world. And that's what Adam Conover sitting next to her says. Well, actually, we pay more than any other industrialized nation, and we don't actually don't get the best health care results. Or there's the assumption about the TSA. We haven't traveled in a while, many of us. Remember the TSA, right? The annoying thing you have to do when you travel. And there's a guy talking on his cell phone saying, oh, I feel a lot safer because, you know, they're going to make me take my shoes off, pull my laptop out of my bag, and put it through the conveyor belt. And that's what Adam Conover says. Well, actually, it's not the TSA that makes us safer. It's ordinary people like you and I noticing when things are amiss. You know, the signs say, when you see something, say something. So that's kind of how the, the show goes, is that Adam Conover will correct these common misconceptions that we all have. And so as we've been making our way through Genesis, I've been thinking that uh, a better title for this sermon series might have been Anders Ruins Everything. I've, call, I've called into uh, question Abraham's, do, or Abraham's role in his goodness as a husband, his role as a father. I've, I've talked about Sarah being an abuser. I've talked about Jacob being a huckster. I've kind of ruined the characters of Genesis as we've gone along. And and as we've gone along, I, I've heard from many of you that you're looking forward to Joseph. Joseph is one of the most famous figures in the book of Genesis. If you grew up in the church, you probably remember him from the flannel graph or from the children's Bible. But I have some bad news for you today. Maybe you caught up on that on the reading that I read for us, is that Joseph, I'm not so sure that he's a hero of the Bible. I'm not so sure how much of a hero he actually is. And so I am going to ruin Joseph for all of us today. And it's only fair because as I was reading through Genesis this time, Joseph was ruined for me, and I'm not going to be the only one who Joseph is ruined for. So here we go. Are we ready? Pastor Anders ruins Joseph for everybody. So remember last week we met Joseph, the favorite child of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. And not surprisingly, Jacob's blatant favoritism of Joseph causes some seriously hurt feelings among Jacob's other children, the children that he had with his other wife, Leah. Remember, Leah and Rachel are sisters, and Leah and Rachel are cousins of Jacob, this little straight-lined family tree. And Jacob gifts Joseph with a beautiful coat, and he becomes the person that we all recognize, Joseph and the technicolored dream coat. And Joseph was a person who throughout his life experienced vivid dreams. And not only did he experience vivid dreams, but he also had this God-given ability to interpret dreams, not only his own, but also others. And that will be important later on. 
But his dreams really cause some serious conflict with his family. His dreams are that someday he will rule over his entire family. His, his brothers, his sisters, his mom and dad, they're all going to bow down and, to him because he is the king over them. And as you can imagine, as the 17-year-old youngest child, didn't go over it all that well, especially with his brothers who already hated him. It didn't even go over well with his father Jacob who loved him and favored him. I can imagine what would happen if my youngest brother said something like that to me, that we're all going to bow down to him. The favoritism displayed by Jacob, Joseph's vivid dreams about his own greatness, creates jealousy that is so bad among Joseph's brothers that they sell Joseph into slavery in Egypt. They lie to Jacob and say, Joseph was killed by this unfortunate accident with a wild animal. We don't know what happened to his body. And, and of course, Jacob is distraught over this. But once in Egypt, Joseph has a somewhat meteoric rise to power. He is sold as a slave into the house of a man named Potiphar. And Potiphar is a man of privilege and status in Egypt. He is the captain of Pharaoh's guard. So think of Potiphar sort of as like the, the head of the secret service. And while he is enslaved in Potiphar's house, he proves to be a person of great skills and great ability. He rises up through the ranks. He is put in charge as the manager over Potiphar's entire household. But remember that Joseph is the longest running, or excuse me, Genesis is the longest running soap opera in history. And so soap opera-like things happen in the book of Genesis. Joseph is described as being very handsome and attractive, and Potiphar's wife takes notice. She wants to sleep with him, so she tries to seduce him. Joseph says, no, I can't dishonor Potiphar that way. Potiphar's wife gets upset. She accuses Joseph essentially of sexual assault, and Joseph is thrown in prison. But even in prison, Joseph finds success. He earns the respect of the warden who looks after Joseph. He makes sure that he's cared for. And it's while he's in prison that Joseph's ability to interpret dreams comes back to light. That there are two prisoners imprisoned with him who are having these vivid dreams that they can't understand. And one of them gets a really unfavorable interpretation from Joseph that in three days he's going to be executed. I don't know if I would want to give that interpretation. It actually ends up coming true that that person is executed. The other, however, is the chief cupbearer of Pharaoh. And Joseph tells him that in three days, he is going to be returned back to service. And Joseph says, do me a favor. When you get back to Pharaoh, tell him about me and tell him about my abilities to interpret dreams so that I can get out of prison. However, the cupbearer forgets to mention this to Pharaoh, and Joseph spends another two years in prison. He's there in prison until Pharaoh himself is tormented by two dreams, two very vivid dreams. And if you're familiar with the story of Joseph, you probably remember those dreams, that in one of them, Pharaoh is standing by the Nile, and there are seven healthy, fat cows grazing, and then they're suddenly eaten by seven scrawny, sickly-looking cows. And Pharaoh wakes up in a cold sweat and doesn't know what the dream is about. Then he goes back to sleep, has another very similar dream about seven ears of corn, seven healthy ears of corn rising out of the ground that are then destroyed by seven blighted, scrawny, scraggly-looking ears of corn. And so Pharaoh tries to get his magicians and his wise men to interpret the dream, and none of them can make sense of it. And that's when the chief cupbearer remembers Joseph. And Joseph is brought back to Pharaoh to interpret that dream. Joseph's interpretation is that there will be seven good years of harvest. The earth will produce abundantly, and then it will be followed by seven years of famine. The interpretation of these two dreams is a God-given gift. There's a sense that Joseph is only able to interpret these dreams because God is working through him, enabling him to do that. 
But then Joseph takes a little bit of a risk. Pharaoh doesn't ask for any policy advising, but Joseph gives it to him anyway. He says, during the seven years of abundance, have the officials go out and collect 20% of what's produced and store it away so that when the famine comes, we'll have extra food. That way the people will be fed. That Joseph proves his ability to think outside the box. He's a person not only of dreams who can interpret dreams, but he's also a person of great imagination. And Pharaoh is so struck by Joseph's ability to interpret dreams, his pragmatism, his decision-making, his thinking outside the box, that he appoints Joseph as second in command. Only Pharaoh is above him. Joseph is sort of the prime minister, and Pharaoh is the queen of England. What Joseph predicts comes true. During the seven years of abundance, they collect the grain, put it into storehouses, and then the famine comes, and there is no food in all of Egypt. The famine was severe not only in Egypt, but also in the other countries in that part of the world. But not only is Egypt fed because of Joseph's planning, his thinking outside the box, his imagination, but also the rest of the entire world, at least the world that is known to that part of the world. And this is where we normally stop when it comes to assessing Joseph as a leader. God has given Joseph an ability to interpret dreams, in a way, it's a way of God making the best out of Joseph's awful situation. And we'll hear those words as we close out our series on August 15th. Hear those words as Joseph says to his brothers, you intended something for harm, but God intended it for good. Joseph responds swiftly to a crisis. He's shrewd in his planning. All the things we can praise Joseph for. He avoids a humanitarian hunger crisis. But the reason why our reading was so long this morning is I wanted you to see how it plays out as the crisis continues. Joseph, as the one in charge over all of Egypt, collects 20% of the grain. He is collecting the labor from Egypt's farmers. Essentially, he is taxing them. Again, that's a necessary thing. There's a famine that is coming. But then notice what he does once the crisis arrives. He doesn't give the grain back to the farmers who produced it. He sells it to them. Essentially, Joseph taxes them twice. And that's not great, but that's not enough to tarnish Joseph's legacy. That's not enough to say that Pastor Anders ruined everything. But there are obvious ramifications for this plan. As the famine, as predicted, continues on for several years, the people start to run out of money. And all of that happens in the second section that I read. The people eventually have no money left. They are buying back the food that they produce that, that Joseph controls. And that Joseph, who planned so well for this hunger crisis, now has another crisis on his hands. The people have no way of paying for the food. And Joseph has a choice here. The Egyptians are faced with extreme poverty, and as a result, starvation, the very thing that Joseph sought to avoid Joseph could reverse course on his policies. He could open up the storehouses, give away the food for free. He could give back the money that is now just sitting in the royal treasury. It would all be a compassionate decision. Joseph could have done all of that. Leaders make mistakes, and sometimes those mistakes are reflected in bad policy, and Joseph could have acknowledged that and changed course. Instead, what Joseph does is he enacts even crueler policy. That Joseph's response to the people in poverty on the brink of starvation is, if you have no money, 
then give me your livestock in exchange for food. All that money sitting in the royal treasury, and Joseph creates a barter economy. People bringing their horses, their flocks, their herds, their donkeys, all in order to get that most basic of human needs, their daily bread. And that works for about a year. And a year later, they come back to Joseph and say, hey, we have nothing left. We have no livestock. We have no money. And so Joseph says, give me your land and your very lives. The land now belongs to Pharaoh, and Joseph enacts a widespread policy of enslavement. The people become serfs to Pharaoh, and in order to receive that most basic of bodily and human needs, their daily bread, they have to produce for Pharaoh. That Joseph himself, enslaved in Egypt, introduces a whole new form of slavery and injustice in Egypt. The land belongs to Pharaoh, at least a portion of what it produces will now belong to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh will control it. Store, it fills his storehouses, so when the next hunger crisis arises, it is Pharaoh alone that they will have to go and get their daily bread from. Wealth is now concentrated in the hands of a few elites, elites who got rich off of a crisis. Gosh, where, where have I heard that before? All of this is what unfortunately creates the very system that will enslave Joseph's own people. Think about the book of Exodus. All of that unfolds in the book of Exodus. Joseph is the unfortunate architect of the system that will oppress the Hebrews in the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 1, a new pharaoh rises to power. This is years and years after Joseph. And he says, what's with all of these Hebrews living here in my land? If we're not careful, we're going to lose our way of life. Also, that sounds painfully familiar. And so, the very, so he enslaves the Hebrews. He exploits their wealth and their labor. And in Exodus 1, the very first thing that this new Pharaoh forces the enslaved Hebrews to do is to build storehouse cities for the grain. Bread that he will control. Places to store up from the production of those that he enslaves. What happens to Joseph, what unfolds in Joseph's life, happens to a lot of leaders in the Bible. The Bible seems to be really honest with the way it looks at how power can corrupt people. There's a lot of leaders who have lost their way as they ascend to power. Take, for example, the two greatest kings in Israel's history, David and his son Solomon. That David is described as a man after God's own heart. That He wrote many of the Psalms that we have beautiful poetry and prayers to God. That God chooses David to be king, I think, because David was a shepherd, someone who could protect vulnerable creatures. But as David becomes king, he also does some really bad things. Power corrupts his own life. We know well his sin with Bathsheba, that Bathsheba is bathing on her rooftop, culturally appropriate, nothing wrong with that. And David notices her and says, I want to sleep with her. And so he has her brought back to his house, to his palace. It turns out that Bathsheba is married to Uriah, a man who is fighting in David's army. And so David says, put Uriah on the front line and make sure that he's killed. And then David takes Bathsheba as his wife. It says that David takes Bathsheba as his wife. At times, David rules over his people, not with compassion and justice, not as a shepherd, but as a tyrant. And then there's Solomon. As he ascends to the throne of his father, David, after his death, he has a moment with God where he can ask God for anything that he wants. And Solomon asks not for wealth or for power, but Solomon asks for wisdom. Don't you wish some of our leaders would ask for wisdom as they ascend to their positions? 
And that wisdom is collected in books like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and that strangely erotic book, The Songs of Solomon. We used to giggle when we read that one in youth group. But despite his request for wisdom at his coronation, Solomon actually accumulates a lot of wealth and a lot of power. He engages in vanity projects for himself. He's the king who actually builds the temple, but it pales in comparison to the magnificence and the size of his own palace. Perhaps he needed such a large palace because he is recorded and reported to have, to have had 700 wives and 300 concubines. You thought our leaders had problems. He amasses a standing army and he uses forced labor in his building projects. I'm sorry, I don't mean to ruin all of the heroes of the Bible today, but I want to just, I want to show us that in the Bible there is an understanding that power can corrupt people. They seem to understand that. It corrupted great leaders like Solomon and David. It, it corrupted Joseph. Joseph, who had been given this gift of foresight, who was effective in his planning, is also the Joseph who exploits labor, who steals land, who consolidates his wealth and his power. That he, in an act of great and cruel irony, is the very person who is the architect, the one who builds the foundation for the system of oppression and injustice that will be used against his own people. Even the biblical narrative itself is ambiguous as to how we are to understand Joseph. Walter Brueggemann, who is perhaps the leading Old Testament scholar of this past generation, notes that when the patriarchs are listed, so for example, when God introduces God's self to Moses, God is introduced as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but Joseph is left off the list. And Brueggemann says perhaps that is because of the kinds of policies that Joseph enacts. Joseph, the, the dreamer and interpreter of dreams, missed the most important dream at all, the one given to his great-grandfather Abraham, standing out in the cool night air, looking up at the stars of heaven, that all of the world would be blessed through him, that God calls us and God blesses us, not just for ourselves, but so that we might be a blessing to others. As the book of order says, we are called for service as well as for salvation, and as the story of God's people continues to unfold, it will become clear that what it means to be a blessing to the world is to help create a just and equitable society. That God will actually give the people laws about not exploiting the labor of other people. Perhaps a reaction to some of the things that happen here in the book of Genesis. It's a world of wholeness and love that God's dream that is that all people would be seen, people who are unfortunately the victims of Joseph's cruel policymaking. God raises up Joseph in a time of crisis. And Joseph could have created any world that he wanted, a world of justice and wholeness, but he went in a very different direction. As I'm still coming down from the emotional high of my installation service last week, I've been thinking a lot about one of the questions that was asked to me. Remember when I was standing here and they asked me a bunch of questions, will you and do you? And um, There's one question that has stuck with me. It stuck with me both times I've been installed, it sticks with me whenever I ordain or install deacons and elders. And the question is this. Will you seek to serve the people with energy, intelligence, imagination, and love? And we could really break that down into the four different categories. But what has stuck with me over the past week is, will you serve the people with imagination? To serve the people with imagination is an ability to think outside the box, an ability to create something beautiful and wonderful that may not be there yet. Joseph was one who was gifted with great imagination. 
But there at Pharaoh's right hand, he more or less loses his sense of imagination. He stops thinking outside the box. He stops being creative. There are no more dreams that are recorded in Genesis after Joseph ascends to power. And maybe I'm stretching the text a little bit, but it is my belief that God was still instilling dreams into Joseph's life. But Joseph missed it. Because as so often happens, power steals imagination. Power steals Joseph's imagination. He no longer attends to dreams. He no longer imagines. He no longer thinks outside the box. And that is why I think we ask that question of our pastors, our elders, and our deacons, is to serve people with imagination. It's because as we assume our leadership positions, it is so easy for us to no longer tend to our imaginations. One of the joys that I've had in in having a toddler, and there are many joys, is that I've been able to watch my son Axel's imagination develop. Uh, a few weeks ago, we bought some new pillows. They came in a, a, some cardboard boxes. So we've had three cardboard boxes sitting in our house now for weeks. It's not because we like to have garbage sitting around our house, uh, but it's because Axel likes to line them up and pretend like they're trains, like he's conducting the train. And I said to Heather, I said, when does that stop? When do we stop pretending boxes are trains? When do we stop using our imaginations? Perhaps that's why Jesus tells us that, or part of the reason why Jesus tells us to have faith like little children, is so we don't lose our imaginations. Joseph lost his. Joseph could have created any world he wanted to create. He could have created a world where everyone was fed for free, created a new and just system, but I think that power clouded his imagination. And as soon as the ring is placed upon his finger, as soon as those fine robes, a very different robe than that dream robe, is placed on his shoulders, he stops dreaming. He stops using his imagination. He stops thinking outside the box. It is my sincere belief that one of the reasons why we gather here together every single week is so that God might help us to keep our imaginations alive, to keep our imaginations alive. And you've heard me say this before, to see the world as it could and should be. And one of the best ways that we do that is through our celebration of the Lord's Supper. This is not just about remembering what Jesus did a long time ago. But it's about what I say to you at every time we come to the table, about practicing and anticipating, envisioning the world that is co- the day that is coming for our world where people will come from north and south and east and west and everywhere in between. At this table, we are literally feeding our imaginations as much as we are feeding our souls and our bodies. The Lord's table is a place of great imagination. We are literally imagining the world as it could be. A world where people are not hungry because they can all come. There is abundance at this table. You can take more than enough because there's enough left for somebody else. A place where everyone gets to come. There are no barriers. Everyone is welcome. Everyone is invited. A place of of justice and equity. That we are literally imagining the world as it could and should be as we come to this table. And one of the ways that we are trying to do that here at Greenfield is something that my friend Garrett mentioned last week. I, I realized that it had been in the newsletter, it's on the website, but I hadn't talked a whole lot about it. And so he kind of, him saying that made me think, well, maybe I should say something about it. That we are now a Matthew 25 church here at Greenfield. And Matthew 25 is an initiative of our denomination that has been around since 2018. And that initiative comes from Jesus' words in Matthew 25 that says, whatever we do for the least of these, our brothers and our sisters, it's as if we have done it for Christ. And there are three parts of that initiative. One is to be a vital congregation, to do practices, to engage in practices that build up life among us, to build up life in our community. The other one is to 
engage in eradicating systemic poverty. So not only being concerned with feeding and caring for the poor, but also being concerned with the structures that keep them poor. And the last one is to help to eradicate systemic racism. That is an enormous vision. That is an enormous vision that it, it calls us to participate in. And there are no metrics or there are no quotas that we have to meet and be a Matthew 25 church, but we have freedom to use our imaginations and how we can achieve those goals. And we will need our imaginations. We will need to, to dream big dreams and, and bold visions to create a, a congregation that engages in systemic poverty and structural racism that is a vital place to be. We will need to challenge ourselves and to think outside the box. We will need to nurture that most sacred gift of imagination, that God works through our imaginations, our, our dreams, and our visions. What we can dream is that what we can then have the ability to create. Dream big dreams. There is no dream that is too big. I always tell people when they are trying to create new ministries, dream as big as you want, and then we'll figure out how to make it true. I've been accused in the past of chasing the whale instead of settling for the minnow, and I take that as a compliment. I think that's who we are called to be, people who chase the whale and never settle for the minnow, that it's chasing the whale that allows us to create a world of justice and equity and wholeness. It's in nurturing our imaginations that allow God's spirit to work through us to create a world of justice and equity and wholeness. If I, was to, I didn't get a chance to ask you guys any questions last week. I was asked a lot of questions. But if I was to ask you all a question, it would be, will you seek to serve the people with your imagination? And I hope the answer is, we will. Amen.